O'er the wild windy sea, I can hear her calling to me. So let's heave away, haul away, and fill our eyes with the shore. Calls to friends, ale and light, and a tale to brighten the night. So heave away, haul away, and heed the siren song. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Salty Siren Podcast. As always, it's me, David Bradbury, and my co-host, Jack McFarling. This time, we have a very good friend of the show and a former college roommate of Jack and I's, Mason Dickhut. Mason, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. How are you, gentlemen? Quite oh, splendid. You know. Sure, we'll go with that. Well, all right. <laughs> Our topic for today is actually, I don't know, because in a change of pace, I am not the one presenting. Jack has prepared a topic for all of us, and I only have the vaguest ideas of what it might be. Jack, do you want to give some of the same hints to Mason to see if he can guess the topic? Yes, yeah, so I will I will give me and David talked briefly of this last night. Um, I will give you, Mason, the same spiel I gave David. So, um, just off the top of your head, give me some, you know, famous World War II uh, heroes or commanders. You know, just off the top of your head. Oh, World War II. Dear Lord. It's been a long time since I've been in history class. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Nimitz. Yeah. Um, I think this is World War II. I, I'm going to be really disappointing here, guys. I'm just going to go with Nimitz' final answer. Okay. <laughs> Lock it in. <laughs> right, that's good. Um, well, I want to tell you about a famous uh, naval commander that you might not know about. He has served in both the U.S. military and the British military, uh, commanding corvettes hunting submarines um was the sole survivor of his destroyer during the battle of pearl harbor uh was trying to escape okinawa um while being injured and paddling on in a tiny raft for days to meet with an australian destroyer so it could um pick him up and i'll end that whole sentence with um allegedly we are so <laughs> real real quick can i can i interject with what my guess was after you told me that last night yes i guessed george hw bush <laughs> <laughs> because okay no i have not verified this at all because we're shit at fact checking but didn't george hw bush get like shot down in the pacific and he decided to like swim out to out to water while the rest of his crew was like fuck that we're gonna swim inland and his crew like got murdered by the Japanese and he got picked up and survived 
Whoa. Is that not a thing? Am I making that up? I have no idea. I have literally no clue. I swear that was the story for one of the U.S. presidents, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was George H.W. I mean, someone's going to listen to this at some point and be like, no, that's just completely wrong. <laughs> but um, anyway, Jack, who are we talking about today? We are, of course, talking about Lafayette Ron Hubbard, the founder of Dianetics and Scientology. No shit. Good lord. <laughs> okay, okay. L. Ron Hubbard. I. Okay, I, I knew he served in World War II. But all right. Okay. Yeah, so well, I'm going to spin you this yarn and then we'll look take that yarn apart and see where the bullshit begins and ends um i imagine there's quite a bit of it yeah <laughs> so right, take us away let's let's start with some backstory on l ron hubbard he was born in 1911 um in Tilden, Nebraska, he is the only child of Ladora May and Harry Ross Hubbard. Um, Ladora was a teacher, and uh, his father was a U.S. Navy officer, which probably is why he is uh, L. Ron aspired to be uh, an officer in the Navy. Um, okay. They. So they were a military family, so they traveled around a lot. Um, uh, his father and his family, as well as Elron, um, I'm just going to start calling him LRH, uh, they've been in, around the U.S. and overseas. Um, for a while, his dad was stationed in Guam. Um, kind of traveling to and fro. Uh when he was a young man during this traveling period, he was writing a lot of short stories and essays that would eventually become his more famous literature that became uh, Dianetics and the founding of Scientology. Um, uh. So his official involvement in the military begins in October 1927 when he joined the Montana Army National Guard in Helena, Montana, at age 16. Um, he, of course, you're not allowed to be in the military if you're 16. Uh, so he lied and said that he was 18. Um, and they said, welcome aboard. <laughs> and they said, cowabunga it is. 1927, there's no real birth certificates. <laughs> When did birth certificates become a thing? That was an excellent question. That we're not going to bother to look up. Continue, <laughs> Jack. Um, yeah, so uh, not much happened there with the National Guard. He served in the as a private in the headquarters company of the 163rd Infantry. Um, next, he... This is the end of 1928. Um, he failed the Naval Academy entrance exam. Uh, bummer. 
Yeah, that's uh hmm. That's so, rough. <laughs> then in September 1929, he was uh studying at a prep school to do a second attempt for the entrance exam. Um and his eyes got bad. He got diagnosed with myopia or myopia. Um, and that precludes him from enrolling in the Navy or the Naval Academy. Uh, an interesting quote from him in response to that, uh, as, a, as an adult, he wrote a note to himself and it's, he says, quote, your eyes are getting progressively better they became bad when you use them as an excuse to escape the Naval Academy, end quote. Uh, so he's saying, like, my eyes were never actually bad. I just kind of didn't want to do it at the time. And so he used it as an excuse. I, I think part of what he's saying is that he because he wanted to i think he's saying he subliminally wanted to escape the naval academy so his eyes got bad his body willed it to be so okay so the infinitely more crackpot version of what i said (laughs) thus begins his lean into scientology (laughs) (laughs) oh good god his nosedive rather okay all right so he, he willed his eyes to be bad, and then I'm assuming he willed them to get better because he, he claims to do all this stuff in the Navy. So what next? That is absolutely correct, because in May 1930, he joined the Marine Corps Reserve 20th Regiment. Um, uh, when Hubbard, was, when Hubbard uh, was asked why he joined the service, um, he said, quote, a little recreation. Life was dull. Fellow came up to me and says, The Marine Reserves are organizing a 20th regiment. Why don't you come on down? End quote. I mean, fair. That's the most, <laughs> the most Captain America bullshit I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. If I was living in like 1920s fucking Montana and someone was like, Hey, you want to go to another country and possibly die, I'd be like, well, that beats being here. <laughs> that beats Montana? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? Any listeners in Montana, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> A fair point. Not, not really. Please keep listening to us. Based on. and just. <laughs> Alright, so... Then... Uh, Next, uh, so a bit of notes about his time in the Marine Corps Reserve. Um, uh, there's a dubious claim about his being rapidly promoted through the ranks to first sergeant. Um, uh, apparently, um, this is because uh, a newly formed unit, or this unit was newly formed, and the superiors were trying to find, quote, uh, anyone else who could drill, end quote. So, um, uh, LRH claims that he was rated excellent uh, 
for military efficiency, obedience, and sobriety. Whatever that means. So he was lame as shit and never drank. <laughs> <laughs> Only drinks on Fridays when he's allowed to. Well, I, I guess it's the 20s. It was technically illegal at that point. Uh, we, we Kansas Cityans were were privileged in, uh, in that Pendergast just did not care. And it was basically legal to drink here. It was 1930, so maybe that was over. I don't. I don't remember. You know what? We we claim to be a history podcast. I'm at least looking this part up. When did prohibition end? 1933. Okay. What okay. was still prohibition? Well, that uh, rating makes a lot more sense now. I mean, but also, Al Ron Hubbard seems like the kind of lame-ass bitch to not drink when he had the opportunity to. (laughs) So. Alright. No drinking. Good drilling. No drinking. Good drilling. Excellent military efficiency. In October 1931, he was honorably discharged, along with the annotation, quote, not to be re-enlisted. Interesting. No no other details on that? Just... That was it. All right. Okay, that's fine. All right. Let's jump forward to the eve of World War II. It is the summer of 1941. Uh, LRH joined the Navy uh, before the U.S. entered the war. He was commissioned as a lieutenant junior grade in Naval Reserve on July 19th, 1941. I don't know if he thought a war was coming. Uh, He probably did, and maybe just wanted a piece of the action. Um, Yeah. And he specifically requested or expressed interest in uh, intelligence duties. Okay. Uh, uh, then, uh, 1941, um, December, uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked. Uh, and... Hubbard's first assignment was to go to the Philippines via Australia, uh, and he was uh, he landed in Brisbane, and for some reason I couldn't really figure this out. Um, he just stayed there. He ended up not going on to the Philippines. Um, <laughs> he just stayed in Australia. Okay, interesting. Well, but also, go ahead, Mason. Oh, I, I was just saying that that seems bizarre uh, as far as having a military order to to continue to the Philippines and then just there being no um, documented reason to stay in a, in a completely different country. I mean, it was the 40s. Like, I don't know. They, they let a lot of shit slide. Like, I know my... Uh, my wife's grandpa 
met her grandma and just went AWOL for like a week and they tried to track him down but really did not try too hard so who knows so um yeah I couldn't connect those dots but of course um according to Hubbard this uh harrowing journey um was filled with twists and turns um According to him, quote, the only anti-aircraft battery in Australia in 1941 to 42, uh, ellipses, he has a really weird way of speaking. Um, there was me and a Thompson machine, submachine gun, ellipses. I was a male officer and I was replaced, I think, by a captain, a couple of commanders, and about 15 junior officers, end quote. So, hold on, is he trying to say, like, it took that many people to replace me? Or just my situation was that dire that... I I think kind of both. I, th- I think he's mostly trying to grandstand that he was the only line of defense between Japan and Australia. Okay. I mean, yeah, that fits. Um, the Church of Scientology, um, they describe his experience as, uh, well, they describe Hubbard as, quote, senior officer present ashore in Brisbane, Australia, um, and assert that, quote, his duties included counterintelligence and the organization of relief for uh, beleaguered American forces on Bataan, end quote, um, Hubbard would claim that he had, uh, quote, sent on my own authority four cargo ships loaded to the gunnels with machine gun ammunition, rifle ammunition, and quinine up to MacArthur, end quote. Okay. We, sorry, this just reminds me of uh, Ivermectin Lady. (laughs) At my bachelor party. What about her? Because well, she was like, oh yeah, ever since this COVID stuff kicked off, I've been drinking a shitload of tonic water because it's got quinine in it. Oh. Gentlemen, um, where, where is gin stored? In I, the ball. the ball. <laughs> oh, man. For, for reference, dear listeners, we did a bartending class for my bachelor party with a a very interesting woman uh, who drew a diagram of how gin is filtered that looked like an incredibly strange phallic symbol. (laughs) So... And she labeled it NS for for nuts. Nut sack. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that part. Oh, shit. Alright, well... Anyway... uh, Quinine stored in the balls, sent to MacArthur. <laughs> so very large claim. Yes, so a lot going on in Brisbane. Um, now, uh, let's see what the U.S. Navy has to say. Um, Colonel Merle Smith, uh, the U.S. Naval Attaché to Australia. I don't know if I'm saying that right. 
um, accused Hubbard of sending blockade runner Don Isri Don is 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 he sorry Don Izzy Drow uh, that ship uh, quote three thousand miles out of her way end quote ah uh. um and uh long story short Hubbard was sent uh back to the U.S. after the attaché complained about him. Uh, quote, by assuming unauthorized authority and attempting to perform duties for which he had no qualifications or has no qualifications, he became the source of much trouble. This officer is not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous and tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think that he has unusual ability in most lines. These characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision for satisfactory performance of any intelligent du- intelligence duty. So, at this point, he has been discharged with an intent for him never to be reinstated into armed forces, and now a commanding officer has said, that he needs to be supervised at all times because he's a little crazy. Basically. And Uh, on top of that, he sent a ship 3,000 miles in the wrong direction. (laughs) And on top of that was apparently, you said he was, at the beginning, you said he was the only survivor of, like, a ship attacked at Pearl Harbor? Yeah, so that, we'll get to that. That was just one that's just one of his many claims. Um, okay. All that right. is just completely not true at all. Yeah, I, I figured it wasn't by the sound of things, but... <laughs> all right. Um, uh, of course, covering his bases, Hubbard also gives many alternate stories of why he returned to the U.S. after this incident. Um, uh quote, wrote himself orders uh, to come back home because the danger uh, in Australia was gone. He had uh, thwarted it. Oh. Um, Yeah. And, (laughs) yeah. Uh, And the Church of Scientology claims, uh, so I got this wrong in the intro. Um, They claim he went to Java, uh, the island where he was wounded um, and scrambled aboard a tiny rubber raft which he paddled out to meet an Australian destroyer to pick him up and um, you know get back to the US so he has his one claim is that it was his idea to come back to the US and the other is that um, he was you know forced to or something Hmm. He he has a very interesting perspective on things, doesn't he? He sure does. What a guy. Good All old right. hub hub. <laughs> Go to Lafayette. I didn't know that was his first name. Lafayette's kind of a cool name. I kind of dig it. 
I mean, it sucks that it's attached to Lafayette Ron Hubbard, but, you know, that's that's a neat first name. Definitely stands out. For, um, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but um, just given how weird he is, for the longest time, I thought his name was Elrond Hubbard. As like in... The thing from fucking <laughs> Lord, Lord of the Rings. Because <laughs> I, I was like, he's a really weird guy. So I don't, I wouldn't put it past him to be named Elrond. If you look it up in 1911 in Montana, the, the second most popular boy's name was Elrond. <laughs> oh, God. Man, I mean, maybe he was L. Ron Hubbard and then read Lord of the Rings and was like, damn, this is sick, and changed his name to L. Ron. You never know. You never know. <laughs> oh, man. Alright, so that kind of concludes the Australia chapter. Let's, uh, jet over to the east coast for his next assignment so in march uh, 1942 he was assigned to the office of the cable sensor in new york city um and he was promoted uh Mm -hmm. along with a batch of other lieutenants of the same rank to lieutenant senior grade um this is the highest rank he would hold in the service. Um, I don't know if he did anything to get this promotion. I think they just kind of did that a lot during this time. But uh, in June 1942, um, he requested sea duty in the Caribbean and um, and instead, they sent him to a shipyard in Massachusetts. <laughs> that's a... I don't know, maybe that's not so respectful, but I was gonna say, that sounds like a respectful way of being like, yeah, no, dude, no, we're not putting you on a boat. Yeah. Uh, Ma- Massachusetts seems like, how can we keep you under the most supervision we possibly can? <laughs> while allowing you to maintain enlist- remain enlisted yes so uh, in the shipyard in Massachusetts um, we find the fishing trawler the MV Mist um, which was a ship being converted to military use um, during this time the uh there were numerous fishing vessels being commandeered and redesignated as YP boats, um, which basically civilian boats that defend coastal waters from Emily, uh, Emily, enemy subs. Um, (laughs) Ah, yes. The great Kraken, Emily. (laughs) Fear her. (laughs) I'm just um, imagining 
like our friend Emily just out there sinking ships. <laughs> the kindest probably... soul I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> just traveling through the water at 80 miles an hour and just shearing a boat in half. <laughs> David Hasselhoff in the Spongebob movie <laughs> style. <laughs> Emily, the real story of the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> the director's cut. Um. So, anyway. Uh, these boats were filled many roles. Kind of odd job boats. Anyway. Um, the mist was commissioned as the USS YP-422 on July 28th, 1942. It was fitted with a 3-inch deck gun and two 30-caliber machine guns. It was uh, put to sea in August for a 27-hour training exercise, um, which Hubbard was a part of. Um, And that is the end of his history with this ship. Because uh, he had a falling out with a senior officer who sent a critical memorandum to the vice chief uh, of naval operations in D.C. uh, saying, quote, uh, Hubbard is uh, not temperamentally fitted for independent command, end quote. And basically... uh, asked to have Hubbard removed and ordered to quote other duty under immediate supervision of a more senior officer end quote man so there's a a whole lot of evidence of him just fucking it all up yeah all of his COs are just slam dunking on him and uh sending him elsewhere But it was a war, so I guess they didn't feel like getting rid of him. Yeah, uh, I mean, every every helping hand. Yep. So, Le Hubbard lost command on October 1st, 1942, ordered back to New York, and this ended his Atlantic service. So, let's listen to what the church of scientology uh relates as the events uh, strap in um according to them hubbard quote took command of a an anti-submarine escort vessel with atlantic convoys end quote um in a 1954 lecture hubbard asserted that he had been sent, quote, to Boston in the very early part of the war to take command of a corvette, um, end quote, which is a much bigger ship than the one that I just described. <laughs> hey. Um, and he had been given a crew made up of convicts from the Portsmouth na- Naval Prism. An interesting f- flavor uh, on that and story. He, he's cl- he's claiming this. That yes, this crew is was a bunch of convicts. This is his claim. Okay, 
I, I fail to see how this makes him more badass, but okay. <laughs> I guess that he was mom to all these wily, wily boys, but I don't know. Hmm. Um, he goes on. Uh, he says that he was posted aboard, quote, Corvettes, North Atlantic, um, and I went on fighting submarines in the North Atlantic and doing other things and so on. Uh, and I finally got a set of orders for the ship. Um, by that time, I had the squadron, end quote. The squadron? Yes, the squadron. Hey. Thoughts, so. Mason? <laughs> I, I I think this might be the first public use of <laughs> of a squad to describe the boys going out on the town. <laughs> then I had command of the squadron, which was me and several other drunks in my part of the navy. Although I say that he did test excellently in his sobriety, you know, oh, which we discussed it, oh, a yes. few minutes ago. So <laughs> true, true. You mustn't forget that. Well, I think the most interesting part of the story is his brief stint with the British Navy. Um, He claims, uh, either he does or the church does, that uh, he commanded, quote, uh, 4th British Corvette Squadron uh, and was running British Corvettes during the war, end quote. Um, And also that he commanded, quote, the former British Corvette, the Mist. So he is claiming that the fishing trawler that they repurposed into a fishing trawler with a gun on it uh, as a British Corvette. Interesting. He doesn't do the best job of covering his tracks or fact-checking himself, does he? No, not really. I guess it uh, become quite powerful when you just don't give a shit. <laughs> um, it is worth noting that the only British naval vessel named the Mist uh, was an Admiralty Drifter, uh, one of a number, one of a number of small wooden vessels uh, constructed for the Royal Na- Navy in 1918. So. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> it's not looking good for our boy hub hub is it hey hey maybe they, they forgot to write down that they did some some serious upgrades on the mist around <laughs> around world war ii <laughs> oh all right all right what, what uh, happened next in hub hub's chronicles um more uh more nonsense um he claimed that he sustained wounds uh quote aboard a corvette in the north atlantic end quote um a so there's a biographical profile that the church published in 2008 um and it asserts hubbard quote see uh seeved, served with distinction in four theaters and was highly decorated for commanding corvettes in the North Pacific. He was also grievously wounded in combat and 
lost uh, many a close friend and colleague, end quote. So did he just straight up change which ocean he served in? Yes. (laughs) 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 All right. All right. Listen, the the chadness is only beginning. Which is funny because I was I was about to to call out when you first said North Atlantic. I was like, huh, I wonder what was going on in the North Atlantic. You know, the the Pacific was was much more the the front for for naval warfare. Right. Um so pivoting back to reality, um he got fired from his job pilling around in a fishing trawler um uh in november of 1942 he was sent to submarine chaser training uh or sent to the submarine chaser training center in miami um he took a get this 10-day anti-sub warfare training course uh certified (laughs) so then who uh, runs this course and, and what is the certification? Do we have any info on that? Um, if I had to guess, probably uh, his <laughs> camp counselor, Johnson. I don't know. <laughs> that, it seems like uh, maybe maybe it's 240 straight hours of, of information. You know, maybe it's 10 straight days. <laughs> they that... don't let you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> You can't sleep when you're tracking a submarine, David. Yeah, they just, like, hold your eyes open and flash images of U-boats at you until you know <laughs> you can be one with the submarine. Let's be honest, it was just a 10-day battleship tournament. <laughs> it, was, it was just a land party for World of Warships. <laughs> Dude... Oh, I won't even go into that tangent. But don't don't play World of Warships, kids. Don't do it. All right. So, what's what's our boy Hub Hub doing now? Um. So after his uh uh anti sub warfare tr- uh, summer camp, um, he was sent to uh. A shipyard. This is a January 1943. Sent to a shipyard, uh, Albina Engine and Machine Works in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so quite the trip. Um, where he was to take command of the subchaser USS PC one five eight one five when she was commissioned. Uh, okay. Kind of surprising to me, given his track record. That's the official record? Yeah, this happened. What the fuck? (laughs) Alright. Okay, how's he do with it? How how is his command? So, uh, this is probably the most exciting chapter of his, uh, and the most meme machine uh, chapter of his career. Um, so the PC-815 was a 173-foot steel-hulled subchaser, and it was commissioned uh, on April 21st, 1943, 
with Hubbard in command and Lieutenant Thomas Moulton as the ship's executive officer, basically the first mate. Um, did, did the first mate was the first mate also certified in the in the ten day submarine chasing course? <laughs> yeah, they were uh, they were bunk mates. <laughs> they did the uh, they, they did the little skit at the end of the camp together. Yo, Ron, wouldn't it be sick if we hunted submarines together? <laughs> um, yeah, I have no idea. Um, Thomas Moulton seems much more qualified than Hubbard, uh, based on what I've read. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but the uh, so when the PC one eight can't get that right when the PC eight one five was commissioned. It was sent to San Diego to commence its shakedown cruise, which means um, just a period where the ship is being tested in real life. Um, mm-hmm. And apparently, what, is that what <laughs> is that where they play limbo on the poop deck? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta ch- gotta check the uh, check the structural rigidity. <laughs> Honestly, um, all of this is hilarious by just imagining L. Ron Hubbard doing all of it. <laughs> like, all of it just takes on this weird, absurdist quality of, like, yeah, and then L. Ron fucking Hubbard took this submarine hunter out and put it through its paces. Uh, yeah. Um, and fun fact, uh, the Shakedown Cruise... Um, where that meaning uh, might come from is the need to settle or to literally shake down the ballast in the hold of the ship to make sure it's level in the water. Huh. Fun fact. Fun indeed. One of few facts in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in the early hours of May 19th, 1943, PC-815, uh, its sonar detected what the crew thought was an enemy sub off Cape Lookout, 10 or 12 miles offshore. So, you know, Mr. Wharf, red alert, um, from... Uh, Let's begin with uh, Hubbard's side of the story. Um, this is. is I have ahead. to. I have to know. Is his is his strategy shoot first, ask questions later? So that's kind of the vibe I'm getting. <laughs> uh, not to spoil it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's hear it. So, from a secret action report um, from that L. Ron Hubbard wrote. Um, it honestly reads like one of his early adventure stories um, that he wrote for columns or whatever. Um, so, quote, uh, the first contact was very good. The target was moving left and away. The bearing was clear. The night was moonlit and the sea was flat calm. 
uh, Hubbard wrote. The uh, USS PC-815 released three depth charges in its first attack run. Quote, the ship, sleepy and skeptical, had come to their guns swiftly and without error. <laughs> so. Um, As in Hubbard's ship was sleepy and skeptical? Or this thing they were fighting? Uh, it's kind of unclear to me. Yeah, well, I guess nobody ever said he was a great author. Continue. <laughs> Yes, continuing with, quote, dawn breaking over a glassy sea uh, at 4.50. The crew spotted an object that seemed to be moving, uh, end quote. This, uh, even though Hubbard himself wrote that the object (laughs) was probably a floating log, quote, no chances were taken, Um, and end quote. And the so crew shot <laughs> the shit out of this law. And the crew used the target to quote test guns which had not been herefore to fired structurally. End quote. Oof. Okay. I mean hey. he was, with, with as outlandish as this man is, he probably originally commanded that they nuke it and then found out that <laughs> his ship didn't have nuclear capabilities. Yeah. Oh shit, that hasn't been invented yet. Right. <laughs> um, oh man. The target sank momentarily, then floated back up. The crew opened fire again, uh, and the target vanished. Um, so, over two and a half days, Hubbard ordered attacks six times, firing oh. a total of 35 depth charges and many rounds from rifles and pistols uh, at what Hubbard believed were two Imperial Japanese subs. (laughs) What is a pistol going to do? I don't know. There it is. And just look at them unloading a couple M1 grands into the water. Oh shit, that's so funny. It's 36 depth charges. <laughs> um so more from Hubbard, quote, all guns were now manned with great attention, as it was supposed it was supposed that the sub was trying to surface. Everyone was calm, gunners joking about who would get in the first shot. End quote. Later there throughout this search, um uh, the PC-815 was joined by two K-class blimps, basically blimps pimped out with guns and shit. Um, two Coast Guard patrol boats and two other sub-chasers. Um, one of these sub-chasers was uh, bigger than the PC-815 and did not fire a single depth charge. Um, okay. And Hubbard uh, severely reprimanded the captain of that chaser for not laying down all of his step charges or resupplying uh, PC-815. They were probably like, all right, well, this is your fuck up, dude. We're just going <laughs> to let you keep going with it. So uh, they didn't find shit. 
you know, surprise, surprise. Um, Hubbard's 18-page report uh, intended, you know, claims uh, they intended to force the sub to surface and attack with the surf with the boat's surface guns. Um, the there was a point where the ships, the whole convoy, took off north. Um, uh, for a report of an alleged resurfacing of the boat, the U-boat. Um, it wasn't. It was just a fishing boat. Uh, then... Oh. oh, Jesus. All right, keep going. And then they said... Uh, Hubbard says the PC-815 saw oil on the surface, though they took no samples, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Hubbard asserts that the blimp saw air bubbles, oil, and a periscope. The blimp records do not corroborate this. Um, of course they don't. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? It's crazy. So, um, like, that's that's my thing here. Is I can't. It's unclear on if he is just absolutely batshit, or. If he's just so hilariously incompetent and he's just lying through his teeth to cover his ass. We shall prove the latter case okay. as we go along. <laughs> um, uh, more quotes from Hubbard. Quote, every man on the bridge and flying bridge then saw the periscope moving from right to left, rising up through the first oil boil to a height of about two feet. The barrel and the lens of the instrument were unmistakable. End quote. Mm. Um, both gunners, this is more from Hubbard, both gunners fired straight into it from a range of about 50 yards, and the periscope, quote, uh, vanished in an explosion of 20 millimeter bullets. Good God. Okay. <laughs> I can't, I can't do anything else but laugh. <laughs> I'm just, well, and the, the best part of this is also imagining that they're like the only people doing anything. So like all these other boats and shit and like blimps are there with them and like don't expend a single round of ammunition or like any depth charges and then Elrond Hubbard's ship is just constantly blasting like everything full auto crewmen are firing their pistols into the water like depth <laughs> charges are going off oh good lord yeah, it's just like eight dudes watching a man flail his arms. <laughs> oh, um, man. So, as I said, no wreckage was found. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, the PC-815 sustained minor damage and three crew members were injured when the ship's radio antenna was accidentally hit by gunfire. Um <laughs> <laughs> there is no way. They, they 
fucking sawed off their own radio antenna. <laughs> what are we talking about as the as the crew sides for the ship? Do we have any idea? Um, 173 feet. Uh, okay. I don't know. I, I don't think I know enough to even make an educated guess, but I mean, not a huge what? ship. Hmm. Well, anyway, um, uh, on midnight on the 21st of May, uh, with all of the depth charges exhausted, or at least Hubbard's depth charges, um, and no traces of the sub, uh, PC-815 was ordered back to Astoria, Oregon, where it had come from. Um, Hubbard, uh, no doubt, was very proud of his work and modestly ended his report, quote, this vessel wishes to credit uh, this vessel wishes no credit to for itself. It was built to hunt submarines. Its people were trained to hunt submarines. Although exceeding its orders originally by attacking the first contact, this vessel feels only that it has done the job for which it was intended and stands ready to do that job again. End quote. All right. All right. Um, so after a little further digging, um, excluding uh, our boy Hub Hubs, um, there were 58 other men on this ship. <laughs> and they managed to hit three of them with the <laughs> Oh, shit. Incredible. That's yeah, 5% of the crew uh, <laughs> taken out by good old Hub Hub. Um,. So, what stands, one thing that stands to be answered is, was there actually a sub there? Um, and the answer is, uh, maybe um, there really? was... I thought it was definitely going to be no. Well, well, we'll get to that. It's a big maybe. So, uh, there was a verified sub attack against Fort Stevens... 50 miles north uh, where this took place in June 1942, so about a year prior. Um, so in the g- general area, it had happened before. Um, Hubbard, you know, still claims, quote, definitely sunk beyond doubt, end quote. Um, one sub and critically damaged another. Um course uh, that view is not shared by his superiors um after reviewing the action reports and interviewing hubbard um and all other commanders present admiral uh, frank jack fletcher noted quote an analysis of all reports convinces me that there was no submarine in the area lieutenant commander sullivan states that he was unable to obtain evidence of a submarine except one air bubble or one bubble of air which is unexplained except by turbulence of water due to a depth charge explosion. The commanding officers of all ships, except the PC-815, state 
they had no evidence of a submarine and do not think a submarine was in the area, end quote. Fletcher also noted that there was a, quote, known magnetic deposit in the area and the <coughs> depth charge charges were dropped, end quote. The clear, this is implying that what Hubbard was targeting was a magnetic deposit the entire time. Okay, that... Yeah, I, I think when it's like, what, how many other vessels were there between, like, the blimps and everything? So, two K-class blimps, two Coast Guard patrol boats, and two other sub-chasers. Uh, maybe, a th- maybe three other sub-chasers. Okay, regardless, like, six to seven to one, saying there was no submarine... And a logical explanation for what he could have been seeing as a target. I'm going to go with there was no submarine. I'm going to have to join David on this one. (laughs) Well, the U.S. Admiralty agrees with you. Um, uh, However, uh, in a lecture uh, Hubbard was doing for the church, uh, quote, I dropped... The I-76, or the Imperial Japanese Navy Trans-Pacific Submarine, down into the mouth of the Columbia River, dead duck. And it went down with a resounding furor. And that was that. Um, if we uh, fact-check this... Um, by looking at captured records of the Japanese Navy, it sh- they show no sub-losses off the coast of the contiguous United States during the entire war. Um, the I-76 that Hubbard is talking about um, was destroyed off of Buka Island in the West Pacific um, on May 16, 1944, pretty much a year later. Um, this is the weird part Um, Hubbard's crew however they were very loyal to him and they shared his conviction that they had engaged an enemy submarine his second command Thomas Moulton uh, later asserted that the Navy had hushed up the incident uh, fearing that the presence of Japanese subs so close to the Pacific coast might cause a panic so <laughs> we'll let you the listener make up your mind about it M- maybe could be but probably not yeah i mean i'm probably pretty biased because you know it's l ron hubbard but really don't think there was a submarine there like, if the Japanese say there wasn't a submarine there, and if six to seven other vessels say there wasn't a submarine there, and there was an explanation for why, like, all his stuff was showing something down there, and there was a single air bubble, <laughs> I feel like there wasn't a submarine. But maybe that's just me. Maybe you, the listener, are completely convinced that the father of Scientology killed a submarine that was 
confirmed sunk in a different location a year later. (laughs) (laughs) But who knows? Okay, so that that puts a close on the probably Hubbard's most famous battle. Um, we will. It's it's kind of downhill. It doesn't get ex- as exciting after this, but there is still some you know fun things to talk about. So oh sure. After returning to Astoria, um. Hubbard was, of course, ordered off that ship um, and ordered to, or no, he was not ordered off the ship yet. Um, the PC-815 was ordered to escort a new aircraft carrier to San Diego. Uh, in June 20, on June 28th, 1943, uh, Hubbard ordered his crew to fire four shells from the ship's three-inch gun and a number of rifle and pistol shots in the direction of the Coronado Islands, uh, which was, they were anchored by uh, for the night. So, uh, what Hubbard didn't realize is that these islands belonged to Mexico, an ally of the United States. Um, uh. <laughs> He just, he cannot stop fucking up, can he? His genius knows no bounds. He had taken uh. the PC-815 into... So, his first fuck-up was he shot at a, <laughs> a Mexico-controlled island, um, and that he had taken his ship into Mexican territorial waters, which is also not good. Um, the island was garrisoned by the Mexican... By Mexican Navy personnel during the war. So there were people on the island. Oh, good. <laughs> it wasn't even like, hey, you used one of our unpopulated islands as target practice. Not cool. He, like, attacked a small military base. What a winner. What a winner. Um, the Mexican government complained about this two days later. And soon Hubbard found himself before the Naval Board of Investigation in San Diego. Um, He was found to have disregarded orders by unsanctioned gunnery practice and violating Mexican waters. Um, On July 7th, 1943, he was reprimanded and removed from command of the PC-815. So sad. So sad. Um, Who will assault Mexico now? <laughs> um, Rear Admiral Frank A. Brasted, what a name, uh, commented in a fitness report written shortly after the Coronado incident um, that Hubbard, quote, considered this, or that Rear Admiral Brasted, quote, considered this officer lacking in essential qualities of judgment, leadership, and cooperation. He acts without forethought as to probable results. He is believed to have been sincere in his efforts to make his ship efficient and ready, not considered qualified for command 
or promotion at this time. Recommend duty on a larger vessel or it can be properly supervised, end quote. What? So... Something about supervision comes up in every single quote from us as superior. Of just like, watch this man. Do not let him out of your sight. He needs a babysitter. So, that is the end of his romp with the PC-815. His, yeah. What a short but glorious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Oh Johnny, Johnny, call and hear the ancient song of sailors long forgone and sailors still to be. A sweet and solemn tune Spoke gently by the tide Oh Johnny, Johnny, fall Join the song